0: Welcome to the Grow Bold with Disability podcast, brought to you by Ferros Care, a podcast dedicated to smashing stereotypes and talking about the things people with disability care about most to help us live bolder, healthier, better connected lives. I'm journalist Pete Timms. And I'm Tristram
1: Peters. I work for Disability Service Directory, Clickability, and am a wheelchair user
0: living with spinal muscular atrophy. Today's episode of Grow Bold with Disability is growing bold and looking different. And our guest is blogger, writer, speaker, and appearance activist, Carly Finlay, who lives with skin condition, ichthyosis. In this episode, we'll discover what it's like growing up and looking different to what is considered normal, and how Carly has overcome people's perceptions to receive an order of Australia, amongst many other amazing accolades. Carly, welcome to Grow Bold with Disability.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: So, Carly,
1: you were born with a condition called ichthyosis. Um, can you explain what that is exactly?
2: Yes. Yeah, so, it's a rare, severe skin condition. Um, I have Netherton syndrome, um, the type of ichthyosis, which is on the severe scale of ichthyosis family, and it's also very, a, a very rare form of ichthyosis. So, there's about 25 types. And it varies um, in severity and also appearance and treatment. And my type is on the severe end. For me, it means that I have red and scaly and often painful, itchy skin. Um, um, it's all over my body, but my face is the reddest. I think that's because it is um, exposed to the elements more and um, it's not, always or nearly ever the sorest um my legs are often the sorest and i don't know why um but they get um infected um more and painful more than uh, my face ever does um it's, yeah, it affects lots of different things. Your skin is the biggest part of your body, the biggest organ of your body. So it affects like temperature regulation, metabolism, although, although when I reached 30, my metabolism I found was just like everyone else's. Um, uh, it also affects, um, uh, particularly in children, there's a failure to thrive because we use so many um, nutrients trying to build our um, skin. And so for you, a a, a person without ichthyosis, you would shed, um, 28 days worth of skin in 28 days. For me, I would shed 28 days worth of skin in one day. So we're constantly losing skin using calories. Yeah. And it affects lots of other things as well. Like, um, you know, we're susceptible to allergies. Um, I don't have, have many, but I know lots of people that have a lot of food allergies. um, we also uh, have problems with our eyes, um, ears. Yeah, lots lots of different things.
0: So what sort of treatment do you get?
2: Um, I maintain it on a daily basis with um, liquid paraffin, soft white paraffin. So that's the ointment that gets made up by the chemist. Um, I take panadol if needed i take antihistamines to stop the itch uh if i have an infection or want to prevent an infection i take antibiotics and i also have um some quite strong painkillers that have only come about in recent years i've ordered painkillers for a very long time and i was referred to the pain management clinic quite recently about four years ago and it's really been great because the panadol just wasn't doing a lot um I also do, you know, like you know, baths and showers with um, stuff that isn't doesn't have sodium laurel sulfate in it. So I use Mugu for my hair um, and also body, and I have this really great salt wash that ha- that helps get rid of infections. Um, or I just use a salt, you know, salt um in a from the supermarket.
1: Yeah. So, you mentioned some of the physical aspects of ichthyosis, but I imagine some of the biggest challenges obviously come down to ableism and ableist language. Um, Can you tell us a bit about that and some of the challenges that you encounter?
2: Yeah, I I would definitely say that the biggest thing um, barrier for me um, is the ableism, the, the society societal reactions to ichthyosis. So, the um inquisitive nature of people can get quite tiring um people's need to know why i look the way i do um obviously you know i have a facial difference um people are very keen on asking me um having to explain things you know like even not now but when i had to go to get a new cleaner i'd have to talk about how there'd be you know a lot of skin around or um you know i've had issues with cleaners not wanting to do it um or being scared when i'm home um this thing, you know, like catching a taxi is always hard um, because they're fearful or, um, you know, regularly asking me about my face. Um, you know, I've, I've done, um, I've taken a couple of complaints to the Human Rights Commission, I think three in 2013. Um, and, you know, I write about it in the media a lot. Uh, that sort of stuff interrupts my day more than you know. The getting ready, putting cream on my entire body—like I'm, you know, very used to that. So it's the ableism that interrupts me.
0: So you mentioned take going to the Human Rights Commission. That was that all those three incidents. I know one of them was taxis. Without all taxis,
2: yeah. So yeah, I mean, I think I think the Human Rights Commission complaint culminated um, after a serious, um, taxi incident. But in that year I had three that I'd made a complaint about, um, including that last one. And, and it was then that I went to the human rights commission. And as a result, we made a video with a taxi company. I have quite a good relationship with that taxi company now. Um, they mm. actually sponsored an event I ran a few years ago, which was really great. Oh, awesome. Um, <laughs> yeah, great. yeah. But you know, you just can't guarantee that you're not going to get an awful driver and I don't think that there's much dedication given to disability training Um, and so they get bare minimum. They certainly don't get a lot of lived experience.
1: Absolutely. I know a number of times I've been denied entry into a cab because of my power chair, and they just don't want to restrain me in the chair in the car. And it's just a nightmare. Yeah. It's absolutely crazy. So, yeah. I mean, you explore a lot of this in your memoir, which you wrote in 2018, Say Hello. Um, so, is, is that some of the reasons behind writing this book, sort of um, exploring this and, and the simple things, the ableism and so on?
2: I wrote my book, I guess, as a reference point for you know, for a wider audience, but i have been writing for many years and a book was the next logical step. So um, I find it useful to say to people who ask me things, can you give me some advice on language or whatever, um, I've written a book. Um, but, yeah, I, I wrote it because it was the next step in my career. Um, it's been useful in, you know, getting me lots of different work in speaking, speaking. Um, and training, consultancy, and it's also been really um, useful in helping parents shift their views particularly. I got a couple of messages from parents this week um, telling me that I have helped them, so that's been good.
0: So you chose to write a non-fiction book, you are a prolific writer. I've been reading some of your blogs. There's pages and pages of them. Everyone should check them out. They're amazing. Was this the first thing that popped in your head to write about or did you have others? Did you have any fiction there as well? Um, well, no.
2: I'd been writing in a memoir style for quite a while for the for my yeah. blog and for the media. I mean, um, you know, mm-hmm. my blog is a memoir that you just keep updating and also the media was a lot of up Um I had said to my agent, or who who actually I got approached by a few publishers, and then I got an agent who I would met kind of in person via Twitter um, at a conference. And when I had some pub when I had some publisher interest, I said to the agent, "Do you remember I live tweeted your event? Um, can we talk about <laughs> me being in your agency?" And so yeah, so then you know um, it was definitely going to be that because I don't I don't really know how to write fiction since I left school, really, um, but I would like to write fiction one day, yeah. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's good to write in the style that you know and become an authority on something, and mm-hmm. that for me was about, I guess, you know, becoming an authority on myself, but also on um, facial difference and appearance diversity issues.
1: You mentioned that the book is um, geared towards, obviously, a, a larger audience. Um, is What's sort of the one message that you would like to get across
2: um, well, I think it's two different audiences. It's people with facial differences, disabilities, skin conditions, etc., cetera, um, to help them feel more confident, less alone. And it's also to people without um, and to help them realize that, um, you know, it, it isn't always polite to demand an explanation about why we look the way we do or here's how they can talk to their children about people with facial differences and disability. Um, yeah, I think they're two messages. And also not to pity us and that our lives aren't tragedy.
0: So you also do a fair bit of public speaking, which is great. What mm-hmm. At these events, is it? Is it the same message you're trying to get across?
2: Uh, depends what the event is, but yeah, definitely. I did a lot last year for my books. So I talk about the process of writing and also the messages in the book. But sometimes I talk about other things. Um, I talk about employment and I talk about um, uh, access events because I I work for Melbourne Fringe part-time as their access and inclusion coordinator. So I talk a lot about um, access for, for my fringe job and also for, you know, other uh, consultancy work outside. Um, I sometimes talk about media stuff. I just did a thing on the environment and climate change a few months ago. Yeah, lo- lots of different things. But my, yeah, I'd, I'd say my specialty would be talking about the book and diversity.
0: Talk You mentioned employment there. How have you found employment?
2: Um, For me, it's been okay. But I understand and recognize that I am – in a privileged position i'm university educated um i grew up in a middle class family, or maybe a working class family and become middle class um but I, i i note that that's not like like it for everyone else a lot of people are segregated in their schooling and their um and their employment they don't get the same opportunities i went to university it was expected of me my parents were quite strict when I, um, after, well, as I was was a kid and they said that I had to go to university. Um, I grew up in Aubrey, Wodonga, which is on the border of New South Wales and Victoria. Mm -hmm. And in that, um, in that area, the courses that I did that I wanted to do didn't exist there and still don't actually 20 years on. Um, so I had to, my parents wouldn't let me go, go away for uni. And, and that was good I guess in hindsight because it allowed me to live at home and uh, be a bit more financially secure there. But, um, I had to do a Bachelor of e-commerce, which I hated. Uh, it was all <laughs> economics and accounting. I was not very good at it. I just wanted to do journalism. And then I got, I. while I was at school in my last year of school, I, I got a part-time job at Kmart, which was the best thing that I did. Um, it taught me a lot of professionalism, but also let me make friends that I didn't have at school and also helped me answer questions about um my skin in a really um polite and assertive yeah assertive way um so I did that uh I worked it came out while I was at university for, for nearly four years and then at the end of my degree I applied for a number of graduate programs and I was successful in two um and I took one in Melbourne at the federal government and I worked there for nearly 15 years um I, w- I chose the government because, you know, in my studies, I'd learned that they were a flexible employer, good for, you know, affirmative action stuff back then. Um, it was good because, you know, there was enough sick leave in general for me when I needed to go to hospital. And in hindsight, I stayed at a very secure job that I did not like. I worked really hard to establish a, a writing and kind of speaking career on the side and In 2016, um, I had to give a speech before Julia Gillard. So she was at an event and I was giving a speech before her. And I got back to work and um, I was an executive assistant at the time. And I just thought, what am I doing? I have to get out of here. So, you know, I looked for lots of jobs, applied for one in a not-for-profit and I got it. And it was part-time and I was really scared I thought, what if I can't make this work? You know, what if I have to ask my parents for money? Made all these lists of things to do to make money. And in that time, um, you know, I wrote, I would write a book on the list and I also wrote, get a contract with a, um, a big organization, a regular contract. And I got those two things within a year, you know. Um, right. uh, I got a call. And my husband said to me, oh, you should pitch to a big business about um, – doing some contract work and then I got next day literally the next day I got this email from someone at a disability organization to say can you come and deliver us regular training for two years I'm like okay so I did that um, and then I didn't love the job at the not-for-profit and I um, but I had my book deal by then so I could take some time to write and look for other things and I got a job at Melbourne Fringe um, in early 2018.
1: So with um with working in the arts and obviously with your employment, I imagine that there's sometimes this this misbalance of being expected to work for free. And that's a really challenging thing, obviously. How do you how do you take on do, do you just have a blanket no? How do you deal with that?
2: Yeah, I get asked to work for free a lot. I have a um standard email and I talk about how if I say yes to working for free, it lets down the whole disability community mm. because People see disability as very homogenous, and if I say yes, then they'll go to the next person and say, "Garly said yes, so we're going to ask you to say yes. Um, I also talk about the structural inequity of it and how they're not really contributing to um, their diversity plan or whatever it is that I'm asked to work for by getting me to work for free. Um And in I I wouldn't say it's so much arts organisations. And I get that in creative industry, we're often asked to work for free. So I'm a disabled person in the creative industry. So I understand it from both sides. But it is often disability Mm. organisations that do it the most. Mm,
0: Yeah. Yeah. Why is that?
2: Yeah, they really take advantage. They've got very low expectations, I believe. It's a lot of non-disabled people working in these organisations. Very low expectations. Um, I know that, there's been, um, you know, I I know people with intellectual disability sometimes don't get paid when um, people who are disabled but don't have intellectual disability do get paid. There's that really low expectation there, and that shouldn't happen. I think it's because of the charity model of disability, mm. where disabled people are expected to take charity to take, you know, to to get a handout, um, not a hand up, and rely on something um to make their lives better or to cure or to heal or whatever um in addition to the medical model but yeah I I don't know I I think it's double when you work in a creative industry and I actually had a friend who I asked for a quote, and I have to ring her after this and say you have to charge a bit more for your services. You're too low. <laughs> You're worth more than that.
0: Yeah, nice.
2: Yeah. So yeah, I've got a speaking agent now who who deals with all my with that. So and my and a writing agent, obviously. But um, yeah, I mean, it's not it's not too bad now. But I will I will publicise it when I get asked to work for free now.
0: Yeah, Fair enough, I say, yeah. Now, you received an Order of Australia this year. What did you receive that recognition for? Um, working to the
2: disability community, I guess, uh, and media, working in the media and disability community. Um, yeah, it's quite a bizarre thing, actually. I feel really, really strange about it. Not strange, like I just, you know, it's a funny thing. It's a weird a weird feeling. I I don't know if it's sunk in yet. I haven't got my medal, but I keep on getting letters now from people congratulating me, and they'll <laughs> be addressed to Carly Finlay OAM.
0: <laughs> <That's> amazing. <laughs> Are you signing off OAM now in your emails?
2: I well I am when it's really um uh, when I need to do something official, but it is in my email address and. I did in the first week ring Peter Dutton's office to complain about the treatment of refugees (laughs) and the coronavirus evacuees. And I said, "Um, hello, my name's Carly Finlay, OAM, and I'm calling to complain about your inhumane treatment of people on Christmas Island. (laughs) <laughs> so, yeah, I have used it. And also I had to email our landlord to get something done and it did get done quite quickly considering it didn't get done before I had the OAM. So I don't know whether that's related, but, yes, I have been. Oh, I love it. I have been using it. Use it where bit, necessary. But I don't – yeah, I feel it is It is a bit weird. And i had a – cut. you know, like I try to separate – work like my, my fringe work a little bit from my other work. But it's it's very hard to and I think that comes from being at the government where I had to lead those two different lives for such a long time. But um yeah, in at work they said, "Oh, do you want the website change?" I'm like, "No, like I haven't got any of that stuff <laughs> at work or anything. That's that's too weird." Um, but yeah, in my in my own life, I have been <laughs> doing that. It's you know, it's nice, and I think I really want it to be visible to other disabled people to see what's possible, and also yeah, I nice. feel like we have to work harder to prove ourselves than most other people, and. Um, maybe this might mean I can, I don't know, I, you know, I still work hard, but maybe I can just have a rest. Maybe I prove myself a little
1: now. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you talk about, um, you know, uh, getting more people recognition and, and so on and so forth. You've actually got an amazing project uh, with an upcoming book titled Growing Up Disabled in Australia. Can you tell us a bit about that?
2: Yeah, so Growing Up Disabled in Australia is part of the Black Ink Growing up series, and um, I there's five books in the series now. This is the fifth book. I got asked to write for growing up African in Australia, as I have African, uh, a South African mother. Um, and when I got asked to write for that, I wrote. I don't actually write a lot about race, but I wrote about race for that book, and and race and disability. Um, and I asked my agent, I said, should we pitch growing up disabled at the same time? And we did. And they said, yes. And you know, I had the book deal quite quickly. I had, so that meant I had two book deals in a year, which was exciting. Um, and then, uh, we had to keep that really secret until December, 2018, when we put a call out for submissions and we had in five months or six months, we had, um, 366 submissions, um, wow. and yeah, and so we chose, we chose around 40 and then I commissioned a couple of, a few, a few others. So, um, whose voices, you know, we, we didn't hear from in the submissions. So the, you know, the hunger for that, uh, writing and reading in is really there. Lots and lots of people submitted and, uh, it's out in June. We've got people like Jordan Steele-John in the mm. book. He told his story. Um, Isis Holt, the the Paralympian. Um, We also have Jane Rosengrave, who is an Aboriginal woman who grew up in institutions and has done some amazing work around um, the Disability Royal Commission and also the Royal Commission into Institutionalised Violence in 2016. Um, Elle Gibbs from People with Disability Australia is in there. Uh, And then we've got some people that you might not have known. Um, We've got some people who are still growing up um, and we've got people who are elders in the community.
1: Yeah, two of my friends have actually um, contributed to it, so they're very, very excited to be published. Oh, who are they? Uh, Todd and Chantelle. So they're they're very, very keen to be published. Oh yes, published I, know, authors.
2: I know both yeah. of them. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really great opportunity, and I know for the, from the other growing up books, like um, "Growing Up Asian in Australia," was released over ten years ago, and Ben Law submitted to that, and then he went on to, you know, do an amazing job in writing and playwriting and TV writing, and then he, you know, edited "Growing Up Queer in Australia." Uh, when I did "Growing Up," uh, when I did the "Growing Up African" media, I did a little bit of that last year. I didn't do too much because my book um, was out at the same time and I wanted other people to have that opportunity, but I did a couple of writers festivals and one of the women on my panel in Byron, um, got a book deal as well through Black Ink, um, after she, um, submitted to growing up, uh, African, she was published Did that. So that's great. Um, yeah, it's, it's a really good opportunity for people. And, um, one of the things I'm doing is, uh, preparing the contributors for working with the media. I want this to be a really positive experience for them. A lot of people have had bad experience with the media or haven't had any experience at all because disability is not often covered in a great way by the media. So I want to use my media skills to um, help people um, and also help the media uh, with this project. And we got some funding to do that, which is great.
1: Uh, finally, Carly, as you know, this podcast is called Grow Bold with Disability. Can you tell us what living a bold life is to you?
2: Um, am I allowed to swear? I,
0: I, go for it. Yep, go for it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's in a good way. Um, I I do a little tweet most days about um, what I'm wearing. I do it on Instagram and, and Facebook as well, but on Twitter we've got um, 200 and... 80 characters and so for the purpose of brevity I say I'm wearing this today and I'm feeling fucking fabulous and I do that because I really like clothes but I also do it to defy those who expect me to not be fabulous with the way I look Um, or not have fun with fashion or not be included in society. So every day, and sometimes I might not be feeling fucking fabulous. I might be really sore. I might have had a bad day with discrimination, but I will state that. But I still in myself feel more confident than society expects me to be. So that's what growing or living boldly with disability means to me.
1: Perfect.
0: Fantastic! I love that message. Now, Carly, thank you so much for joining us today on Grow Bold with Disability.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: And our listeners can find out more about Carly, her blogs and her book, Say Hello, and everything else in the links provided in today's episode show notes. Thanks again for joining us.
2: Thanks so much for having me. It was lovely to chat.
0: Thank you for listening. And if you have enjoyed today's episode, then make sure you subscribe to the podcast, Grow Bold with Disability. And if you like what you heard, please take a few moments to pop over to itunes and give our podcast a quick rating so we can continue these conversations and encourage people to grow bold this podcast is brought to you by ferros care an ndis partner delivering local area coordination services in queensland south australia and the australian capital territory ferros care is a people care organization committed to helping people live bolder lives we call it growing bold and for over 25 years Ferris has been making it real for both older Australians and those living with disability. To find out more, head to ferroscare.com.au.